This podcast is sponsored by THX, a globally renowned brand focused on delivering premium entertainment experiences and is passionate about telling the stories of the creators behind great productions. Find out more at THX.com. I'm here with the Star Wars Battlefront team from Dice Studios, based in Sweden. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with me about this one-year anniversary edition of... It's been a year, right? Yeah, a year since the release. It's been great, actually. I mean, we did uh, worked on it for two years, and then obviously been doing the DLC for a year after release as well. It's been awesome. a great ride. And that's uh, Ben Minto, the audio director. Ben, congratulations on successfully launching a new franchise of video games. It seems I, I, I play online a lot, and I see that there's no slowing down of players. We're coming up to releasing the fourth chapter, the Rogue One. Is it Scarif? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I think it's Scarif. Is that right? Yeah. Scarif. Yeah. It's Scarif, the yeah. fourth and last uh, DLC. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've um, Martin has been... Martin. Further has been running that project, and I mean, I've I've moved on and helped on other things, but I'm still picking yeah. up and playing my way through all the expansions and like you know, it's half keeping an eye on it, but half because it's still fun to play as well. So yeah, yeah, it's encouraging when I go online. I see that you guys are playing. I'm like, all right, cool. So uh, I'm not alone in this battle. I have friends around the world battling the the Empire and the Rebels. So let's let's look back and just imagine where what were you guys thinking? You know, over a year ago when you were first, you know, maybe just working towards getting that Golden Master launching Battlefront. What do you remember in terms of just what your hope was for this game title and what fans were going to experience? I think when it all started out, um, most of us were working on Battlefield 4, and that's when the first time, I mean, this is probably about three years ago now, and that was the first time that we were actually finding out that we were going to make a Star Wars title. Because in a way, it's this weird completion of the circle, because the original Battlefront was sort of a bit like a battlefield set in the Star Wars universe that was obviously developed by another company. And then it was almost strange that this idea of a, a, a sort of a mod, it wasn't exactly a mod, but a mod coming back to the place where Battlefield was made. And so when that circle was completed, I mean, the first thing you're thinking about is, you know, we work on our own large IP in terms of Battlefield, but... Uh, Star Wars is obviously the biggest IP in the world and the first thing that hit me is just the daunting task of like you have to make sure you get this right because this IP means so much to so many people and every sound is ingrained in almost everybody's collective psyche that if you get one thing wrong it will stick out like a sore thumb and break it so our, our goal was pretty much you know try and make it as close to the films as possible especially because we were sticking with the original trilogy as well so getting that authentic authenticity, but with the, the sort of battlefield flavor that we can put on things about how we put sounds in the world and how they react over distance and how readable they are. I, I was just going to... Hi, I'm David, by the way. Uh, I was just going to add um, towards your question. At the end of the project, one of the main things that we thought about is uh, that it works. Because uh, especially at the end of a project, a lot of things start breaking. A lot of optimizations aren't happen are happening. And we, <laughs> there were some uh, scary moments for sure, where like the whole game is distorted, and uh, players are reporting things from the beta that we could never reproduce ourselves. Uh, so, yeah, s- a scary times. We want to definitely make sure that the things we build for two years are actually playing as well. Yeah, and for you, even for you, Martin, um, when you think about, I was looking back at this the. The deep dive it was done in February of this year. You guys did a deep dive into some of the sounds of Star Wars Battlefront and kind of looking at some of the fantastic 
new sounds or reimagining sounds, some of them like the thermal exploder was one, and you guys were going bit by bit. Now that you look at that you have this great library of sounds to rely on, what what are things that you thought like we have an intention and you're able to accomplish and some things that are still kind of like, oh, I wish I could do that a little different or are you even thinking about that? Are you pretty much happy with those some of those sounds you can't go back and change now, I suppose? Oh, well, we did change some stuff over the, the course of the, the expansion. So whenever we yeah. thought something needs tweaking, for me, it was like all this little stuff that was in the background, like really hard to mix. Also, mm-hmm. me being new on, the, on, on at DICE and also new with the Frostbite engine, I had a, in the beginning a bit of a hard time actually learning to mix with the HDR system. And then I was, for example, responsible for all this like big stuff happening in the background and like uh, making it cut through, but at the same time being it being that background thing that actually doesn't grab your attention instantly. Oh, I was asked, uh, do you guys have any real idea data in terms of how much or how people are listening to your game when it comes to headphones or consoles or, you know, what's what's the channels that they're listening to? Yeah, it's it's pretty... <sighs> It's, it's pretty hard to get all that information back. We have some rough idea on how people are changing their settings and stuff. And it's typically very low on console. People mm-hmm. just generally assume that the console is going to do everything for them. Uh, okay. So that I mean, that one is usually set up. Obviously, we try and aim for basic TV speakers. You know, we don't assume everybody's got home cinema, but we make sure that everything works in the largest number of cases. And obviously, on the PC, most people play on headphones anyway. So we sort of tailor the PC towards that era, and then consoles mostly towards TV speakers. But if you know, in the audio settings, we leave almost everything tweakable anyway. You know, size of speakers, dynamic range that you're playing on, and that sort of thing. And how have you found in terms of uh, with each of these DLCs, is there a sense of how much time you will have? How far out did you know? You said I, we're, we're, there's going to be a total of four DLCs. How do you manage? Well, the thing that takes the longest time usually is the run-up to doing the music. <clears throat> Because there you have to book Abbey Road, you have to also find when LSO are available as well. You have to get the music written and the music also has to be approved as well. So that's generally got the longest lead time and that can be up towards a year. So in that instance, my thing there is to make sure I get a lockdown of exactly what uh, places we're going to visit, what themes we want to say, and then also what heroes we're going to introduce as well. So I think that's the first thing that needs locking down. And a lot of that was actually locked down before we'd finished the base game. You know, you, we need to know what we're going to do. And I think in that situation, I actually split it in half because we knew towards the later X-Packs we were going to be tying into the next new film, but we didn't know exactly what that was. So it's all about giving yourself the time, but ju- usually just enough time. And I think for the rest of it, planning in terms of maybe you want to talk about like either the VO characters or... I mean, yes, and talking about like what takes the longest. I mean, then probably the next big thing is, uh, I would say, is VO because they need to be done at a certain point and then they can't change anything anymore and lock needs to be involved and it's a really big and convoluted process in in a way and then for mainly for our sound designers which there were two um it's well it's we we get a list of stuff that we that people want to do and then it gets narrowed down more and more over the process of the project it's Usually we have around three months <coughs> per X-Pack. 
And I think also the good thing is a lot of the expertise as well. Like if um, it was Martin and Michael that ran the uh, DLC things, at certain times they might go back because David looked after all the blasters, for example, from the first time. It's like, oh, um, can you help us out doing this other blaster? And I think referring back to one of your other questions the, um, about where the sounds came from, it was making sure that everything still felt a part of the Star Wars universe. We were quite strict on adding sounds to it so it always had to be based on a star wars sound to start with we couldn't add any just generic sci-fi sounds it, it, it's not star wars yeah. so i mean david went down the rabbit hole of different blaster sounds and uh, we lost him for a bit there but he he came up again so. well i think that's one of the most uh, exciting times when you you're not you have a deadline but you know that you have time for discovery can you describe both the collaboration within the studio and with the property of Disney and Star Wars, kind of the checks and balances of trying to come up with the sounds? Yeah, I mean, when we started, I mean, if there is a representation of it in the film, then you actually know your starting point. And typically for a lot of the sounds, say, for example, a blaster, they're always represented on the screen, typically in third person. They're pretty close to where you'd expect the listener to be. And the thing we know here at DICE is how to take that sound and then either bring it closer for like first person or even to zeroth person for IM sighting, but also how that sounds 25 meters away or inside a building over there. So it, it's, I always describe it as like we, we didn't start with a fully blank canvas like you usually do on a project. Some parts of it was super, super detailed, so we knew exactly what was there, but then there was like quite a big void until the next bit of super <coughs> detailed information. So you'd always have to basically expand out from that starting point. And then when I found when doing the ambiences, it was a lot easier if I sort of tried to walk in the same shoes and did like um, Endor, then Tatooine, and then Hoth. Then when we came to doing our own planet, if I used the same ideals and techniques that I thought I'd discovered, then the sound actually felt the same as well. So it's actually the practice of replicating, I guess, the original film sounds helped then inform how you went forward with the new stuff that we had to add as well. Yeah, that pretty much applies to every aspect of the sound. We try first to to find out ways to recreate the same style so that if there's anything new, we can do it in that same language. So that applies for blasters, abilities, ve vehicles. And also, like Ben said, there are things that are in the movies and then, of course, that is the reference. But we also have to consider there's a lot of new things in the game that are not necessarily represented or had a sound in the movies oh. and also you have to consider the uh, sound also needs to provide information and sometimes in the movies and like it can be hours apart between those instances it can be the same sound used for different things and if in the game these things can happen next to each other at the same time we obviously want to differentiate them but still without uh, straying f too far off the the core sound so that's that's part of the challenge of making a game out of uh, the reference yeah how much interaction and feedback did you get from even even people like Ben Burt or some of the other folks who are who have been part of the sound teams like Matthew Wood or other folks who have been kind of responsible for the film representations we went to visit the team at Skywalker Ranch twice 
yeah. so the initial time was more fact finding. That was myself and uh, Ben Pyor, who spoke to the yeah. other week, uh, went up there, and that was actually tying in as part of a, a GDC trip and other things as well. And it was it was more to sort of see what the expectations were and the IP. And there, I think the the overall message was, you know, it, it it's a thing of respect for Star Wars, which I think we already had already yeah. and also there there's quite a big difference between you know uh, making a film and making a game for a game you know we'll need 40 footsteps on every surface you know whether it's snow uh, gravel mm -hmm. stuff like that but that's not really how you build a film you know it, it's not like they just could have those and pull them off the shelf and give them to us the oh. second time um actually gustav rassman and david went over there um, to get a bit deeper and show a little bit of how we actually worked in the engine, but also to do a Foley session over there as well. Mm. When we got into production, um, we have this relationship where we have uh, people from Lucas who we actually pass all our work to for reviewing. So that's every area of the game, you know, whether it's animation, yeah. effects, music, and those sorts of things. And from an audio point of view, and we had just really great you know it was a really easy time of it um yeah. gordy hab who did the music already knew everybody there as well but obviously his music just shone through and it was just going straight through um the vo with scripts and things can sometimes you know take a couple of rounds uh to get it right and especially with the delivery and the performance of it as well to make sure it's it's canon and within star wars uh -huh. but in terms of the sound effects i think the the only time i can remember we had direct feedback is when there was actually a bug we had the wrong sound on a, um, a bowcaster i think it was and it was just like yeah. this is the wrong sound it's like yep we know sorry it was a bug <laughs> i think it was a placeholder even it was just an existing sound the real sound wasn't made yet, so it was just something else. So the gun has something, or the blast. It was like a slapping of a rubber band or something. Yeah, it was just. I think we were yeah. more. I think we. I think from sound effects, we took it as seriously as it was meant to be, you know. And um, it, it, you know, when you're getting to work with this stuff, that it is special, and you have to take care yeah. of that. That's that's. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, going into some of those character vocals, I love the fact that we've never heard maybe Bosk. Or Orson Krennic or Jin Arso. Who's the point of reference? You have a visual representation. You've seen them on screen. You've seen them in, in different places. So where do you guys start for some of those? That's really exciting to reimagine some of those vocals. Um, for example, for, if, with Bosk, it it's, uh, was a quite tricky uh, decision process. It's like, because in the original trilogy, he just makes some kind of guttural, throaty sounds. Yeah. But then in the Clone Wars, he actually talks proper English. Um, and but then, as a as a the game design vision was that he is like this predator and um, is he is is a he hunts. He's not necessarily in it for the money, but he wants yeah. to kill. And for us, the the Clone Wars version was a bit too tame for that. So we wanted to push it a bit more into like this animalistic uh, direction. And so what we did is like we experimented with vocal recordings and morphing them with animal noises like hisses, groans, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then in the end, when we recorded uh, the the VO, uh, D. Bradley Baker, who is also the the original the Clone Wars uh, artist mm -hmm. for for Bosk, we asked him to incorporate like animal noises into his performance. And on top of that, we recorded um, a library with him performing various animal noises for us, so we could huh. have a, ha, would have a better time mi mixing all of them, that stuff together. 
And what we figured out then, we needed to, we didn't need to bring in any other animal sounds anymore because Dee's performance was just so great, and we, we just used his recordings and some editing to create the final result. That's awesome. Well, well, I'm thinking of some even the DLC for the Death Star. I haven't played it yet, but I just from the film I know like the hum of the Death Star of being inside of it. Some of those kind of iconic things that you associate with some of these spaces. For for the Death Star expansion, what can you say just about recreating some of those iconic spaces that people love? I think one thing I found, I mean, we we um, got the source material for that. Yeah. I mean, either directly from the film or, or a separate library. And I think one of the things I really liked about the original trilogy, and this is where tools like uh, RX Isotope came in, you know, it was a lifesaver, is that they were obviously multi-tracked recordings, you know, various recordings of different things layered together. And with RX, a lot of the time, it was really quite straightforward to actually pull the layers apart. I mean, it's it's easier probably talking about the Endor Forest, where you can start actually extracting all the birds out and even the cricket layer. And then what you get down to is the, just the, the sort of base part, so the, the non-bits that stick through. And then with that, what, you, what you're trying to do is, is base it on the original trilogy, but also... Uh, sort of bring it into the more modern uh, soundscape that people expect. So, you know, just a, a bit of the fidelity and a bit of the life back to it as well. And also splitting it out into quad. So it's it's great that you have this this anchor point that everybody knows and recognizes. And then you've just sort of got to just not make it fit to the, the audio quality of everything else as well. So it's, you know, just clean it up, add a little bit of extra... I guess presence to it and stuff like that as well but then also pull out the separate telemetry sounds that are on it and actually place those physically in the world as well so it actually becomes you know interactive and around you it's kind of a shame that there's always so much action going on that you can hardly hear that all that work I imagine you could you could just create like a single player game and just stand around and listen, right? Well, if you ever see me playing online, I'm usually squatting down in the corner just trying to hear things, so it's quite <laughs> good. Or checking the droid works because I mean things with some of the droids as well. There's there's library, uh, there's some stuff that you can use. Obviously things like the mouse droid, um, yeah. but there was a, another droid I, I actually forget the number that came on the Death Star that there wasn't any sound recordings for. So you you try and learn the process of how, say for example, the mouse droid was made or other various droids and then use that process to come up with something that you know sits in the Star Wars universe yeah what have you found in terms of working in the video game format this open sandbox approach where like you said there's always there's always sounds in multiplayer games it's an incredibly busy world how do you look at the mixing engine I guess is frost the kind of backbone oh. yeah frostbite and the the HDR mixing as well yeah. I mean it's it's this there's a sort of a simplish rule it's not overly true but it accounts for about 60 to 70 percent of the mix and you could say is generally the louder something is the more likely it is it's going to kill you and so yeah. that's the the primary information you know an ATAT is louder than an ATST it's louder than the rocket launcher is louder than the blaster so you have this yeah. uh, hierarchy I mean it's not the only rule we use to mix but I mean when you're playing a game what we try and do is obviously present to you the most important sound at that time the one that's going to have the most information encoded in it that allows you to react in the best way because if you can draw information from the soundscape and you react better then you'll actually play better and you'll feel the game is better as well so it's a, it's a sort of a nice yeah. circle of rewarding experience so i mean the the mixing ethos i guess behind star wars was it takes the learnings that we know from battlefield but we had a very again a very clear target 
to try and sound like the film. You know, we would take the battle scene from Endor and compare it to one of our playtests and be like, mm. yeah, I'm starting not to be able to tell the difference anymore between the two. I think it was only sort of like unique VO lines that start to stick it out and you can be like, yep, that's ours or that's from the film. And that was yeah. the intention. And what can you say in terms of where technology is today? When it, I th- I, Let's just say someone who's listening on headphones you can still get a pretty close representation of a 5.1, I suppose, surround kind of sense. What is it about the technology? How do you describe the technology that is being shipped with these games now when it comes to surround information and also just the world that you guys are designing for? Well, Battlefront was actually the first game that we shipped with uh, object-based audio. So as opposed to trying to predefine or guess exactly where certain speakers are, like your left speaker is 30 degrees over there, your right speaker is 30 degrees over there, or your 5.1 set up properly. So it was quite an extension for us to go from that uh, fixed channel mixing to object-based mixing as well. Um, we still, for the majority of listeners who didn't listen in Atmos, still have to derive, you know, as a standard five-one-seven-one compatible surround mix and also a stereo mix as well for the headphone. Yeah. So it's it's the information's there, and I think we're sort of at the tipping point, especially when we go into the worlds of VR as well, of like, you know, a lot of the headphone solutions that you're seeing are coming out at the moment are sort of HRTF-based solutions, but also with the sure. added heights dimension as well. So it's all about how you take the results of this game running in objects, and then how do you render that? Do you render it over HDMI for full-blown uh, object audio, um, Atmos, or do you have a renderer that will get that down for like um, Dolby Atmos for headphone, like Overwatch did as well? And you'll see a lot more of these technologies and games shipping with this in the future. What can you say just about working in the game audio space? It's a different kind of approach because there is such a technical back end to the, en- the game engines and the sound engines. What can you say just about your guys' backgrounds? For someone who's working in games or wants to get into video games, there's, a fun- there's fundamentals. But then, what are the other aspects? It, the funny thing is, it, at the end of the day, it's it's so uncontrollable. Where we play the game and we listen to the game, and you're like, oh yeah, there's there's David's new blaster, there's Martin's new superstar destroyer landing in the background, and then we'll hear something, and we won't have a clue what it is, where it came from, or anything like that, because we're not working in definites. We're just working in like uh, boundaries, like an upper limit and a lower limit, and stuff can happen anywhere in the middle. And we're building like synthesizers. And these synthesizers react on tons of different game inputs, how far away it was, how much health you've got, how many people there are, heights, you know, on so many strange parameters that we don't always know exactly how it's going to turn out. And that's, I think that's the enjoyable part. I mean, everybody here is a very strong sound designer in terms of making a WAV asset, like a fixed yeah. sound. But also everybody absolutely loves and relishes the, the, the parts of actually problem solving and creating the engine part of it. You know, I mean, if ever we've got a problem, I think we have about 10 people just want to jump on it and solve it. You know, everybody's like, oh, brilliant, a really hard problem to solve. Great. You know, and you, everybody's eyes lights up. You're basically creating this uh, almost this AI almost in a sense where there's so many interlocking complex system. And if if you manage to do it right and everything just works together, that's that's like the, the end goal. That's what you want to get. And that's, I think, to me, is a lot more rewarding than just a linear track of good audio it's having this having the machine do the right things at the right time that's very that's, that's very rewarding and it's 
the, yeah, like Ben said, the, everything can happen at any time and there might be things happening that you don't expect and then you iterate, you find what that is and you put it in the right space uh, compared to what else is going on or what might be going on as well. You have to do a lot of guessing as well in a game like this. Um, sometimes there's just like so many parameters, for example, for vehicles that sometimes you have this phantom fader effect where it's just like you spend hours to tweak it and then you just don't know anymore. It's like, did that actually do what I wanted to do or? Sure. But yeah. Yeah, if you have like 10 parameters affecting the the amplitude of the, of a specific layer in a vehicle, then you might, yeah, it, it can get difficult. Yeah. Can you give a, a sense of the scope of the library? So you had the first release and the DLCs. How do you manage data and compression and keeping dynamics and fidelity? What can you say about just kind of the systems? How how big data wise are we looking now? It's it's hard to say. Um, yeah. I mean, those. It, it's funny because I mean, you we. I was doing another uh, talk recently, and you get asked a lot of questions like, you know, how much RAM can you use on a system these days? And what happens is our are issues that were problems on a, a game system 10 years ago, like how much sound RAM, how many voices you can right. have, don't seem to be the problems we, we have anymore. I mean, occasionally I think we get told that we might have to uh, compress a little bit more. I mean, we very hardly compress sounds that much these days at all, because it's mostly yeah. just about disk space and when you start doing um, different localization SKUs and those things. So we're not trying to squeeze data anymore. What the squeezes are now is probably CPU limit. Because we can create these fantastic patches, like everybody says, that's juggling 100 parameters coming from everywhere, and there's 64 of them on the map at the same time, our, our actual costs usually come more towards CPU. So I can't, off the top of my head, give you an exact answer. One thing we did look at was we tried to work out how many of our assets were very strongly taken from uh, the film assets or the assets we gave. And I think we came around the 10% mark. I mean, the other 90% were obviously heavily based on Star Wars and influenced from Star Wars, but they were from content that we'd taken and then manipulated to be Star Wars. Yeah. Um, I know that didn't answer your question, but... No, it's great. No, I, I can understand the challenge or just the... It's not like it's a solid... Yeah. What can you say about the... when uh, Going back to music, how is that delivered? Is, is that object-based also? Is it a stereo? How is it being represented when it's played back? It's one of those, I don't know, it's a quite a simple decision to make, I guess, on my uh, part. I mean, we were doing the original trilogy, and the music in the original trilogy, uh, in my remembering, like, way back before it was remastered, was obviously in yeah. stereo as well. And because it, it's nicely positioned in left and right, for me, if you keep the music there, then you've actually got a lot more space to play with. I mean, I think I lifted it up a little bit into Atmos mm -hmm. and spread it a little bit wider, but I didn't take the original soundtrack that everybody knows and loves and try to spread it over the whole space. And then when we take that original music and then it was uh, spliced, I mean, uh, Gordy Hab obviously took that and we did it as a like a, a collage of taking a bit of the original score, then writing a bridge between it and then another piece of the original score. That was written and recorded in the same way so that we had, a, a, in my mind at least, a traditional stereo score as well. It knew its position, it sat in a certain position, and it stayed there in the soundscape. Yeah. And some of the other kind of moments in the game, are, it's, I guess they're cinematics, or kind of like these somewhat kind of predetermined moments, like when you get a hero, or some of the setups for the levels. 
how do you approach those? Are they locked down? Are they always the same? Or are there variations on some of those? Um, yeah, they're locked pretty much. So when a hero okay. arrives, we know that uh, the camera's going to get taken away from you for 11 seconds to do a, mm -hmm. a pan round. And then obviously we do the musical introduction for that character as well. Um, there's a different musical introduction if that's you playing the character that's longer and the camera's taken away but on some levels if you if you wanted to notify that Darth Vader's appeared on the level you'll just get a shorter stinger saying Darth Vader's here and then there'll also be some other accompanying VO going you know the Lord of the Sith has arrived or, or something along yeah. those lines as well and yeah usually with the intros to levels as well they're, they're fixed length as well um, but Martin actually worked a lot on the missions um, so where you can do uh, different sort of swarm modes and things like that. So the music edits he had to do for that, you know, how long is it going to take somebody to kill 10 people? Uh, you know, that you could be done in 30 seconds or it could, you know, take nine minutes to find the last bloke. So that music had to be a lot more adaptive to those situations, but also not be repetitive. Yeah, which was in general a tricky task as it's uh, Star Wars music is quite dynamic in itself. So it becomes really hard to make it like a layered or find mm -hmm. defined points to crossfade into another piece it's it's uh usually simple works best in that case yeah yeah it's not like everything uh, from the original score is written in the same key and tempo it's when you mix and match things for the gameplay requirements then it can be quite hard to stitch it all together and I guess how what, what was the approach then for all the voice actors there's the, your main characters but then there's also kind of the banter among the squads and there's a whole nother litany of kind of conversations that can happen in the game how do you guys script it out how do you manage how do you keep track of all the the things that can be said and are heard well i think the first thing is split it down into characterization so i mean the the stuff that's over the the radio or the the commander voices yep. and stuff right. i mean they're very very well defined um you know you've got am i saying it right mom mothra yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, she. Sorry. I, I always. I can. I can type it. I can't say it. But I mean, her very clean, delivered, quite posh voice is very good from the rebel side of things. And then the Imperials have that quite sharp, curt, very almost posh British accent as well. So I mean, there's a characterization that already exists there in the original trilogies that's quite easy to follow. I think what the hardest thing to do is the actual uh, soldiers on the ground as well. I mean, the, the main bit of reference from the film there is obviously the Battle of Hoth, where they're all in the mm -hmm. trenches. And that, yeah, it is actually quite high temperature, which is, you know, a, um, you know quite soldierish shouting as well. And there was some uh, early stuff that came out of Rogue One as well that sort of said, you know, it's okay for this to exist in the Star Wars universe as well. So it's, it's taking things, we're not so much taking decisions as actually, you know, just bringing things together and making them work as a, as a unit as well. In terms of the tracking, I mean, you know, we have tons of software like uh, Perforce and uh, Jira and stuff like that to, to track, you know, bugs, localization, processes, what's been recorded, what's been localized, what's been approved. So it's, um, it can be quite a bit of paperwork along with the sound as well. So. Yeah. And how do you guys divvy up in terms of who's doing what elements in terms of environments or vehicles? And there's only three of you here, but there's hundreds of sounds, I suppose, right? 
Well, there's a few more sound designers as well. Yeah. Um, some people have a, a leaning towards things. I think David was uh, early on on the project, so he sort of made a jump for the blasters and stuff like that. And uh, David joined. Uh, sorry, Martin joined on later and was given the missions as well. Um, I think we have set areas of ownership, but everybody. We do share things a lot between each other as well, because you don't want a single point of failure as well. You know, like me going off on paternity leave, I couldn't just look after all the ambiences, and then when I disappeared, nobody looks after them as well. So I think, yeah, everybody's quite passionate about what they do. So Yeah, we should be quite versatile, as Ben said. Some, some people might be uh, on holiday or paternity leave, and then we need someone else to continue. And also Martin and Michael had to obviously touch every area in the X-Packs, so they needed to also be able to do blasters, explosions, uh, vehicles, etc. And uh, so, yeah, we, we are not, we have our strengths and weaknesses, I guess, as everywhere, but we try to be versatile, for sure. Well, what does it mean now, now launching the last, this last DLC? What kind of additional support do you guys have going into the future then? Or, or I mean, are, are you guys done now in the sense of implementing new sounds and yeah i think as as far as i understand it this is the the last dlc so the last uh content yeah. push from a sound point of view um i mean there, there's there'll be support going on you know if there's any need to patch it or to tweak things or you know yeah. x-back weekends and the thing is never to say never because i mean i've worked on projects where you go right we've done the main game we've done the dlc that's it and the game can still live on for three, four years. It, it's down to demand and also a time to know, um, because it's been announced we're making a sequel as well. So it's the balance between, you know, like working on this project in the DLC and then working on the sequel as well. So it's... Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah. So every time I've, you know, I've thought that, you know, sometimes I've thought like, oh, a game's done. Um, it can still, you know, happen that we have to work on it as well. It's still a lot different again from like 10 years ago where we used to do the gold master disc and what was on that disc shipped and you could never change it. You know, yeah. today we can re-release in a patch every day, every week to change things. But also we have live services as well. So, I mean, um, you know, there's always news on the dashboard or X-Packs or, you know, XP weekends. Yeah. Do you, got, do you guys find yourselves jumping in and playing? I know Ben is. I've seen Ben online a lot. Well, I've got a two-year-old son, so I can't be playing Battlefield 1 in front of him. I have to wait till he's go to bed. And <laughs> he comes running into the room, uh, grabs the controller and goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which is his representation of the theme. And then so I actually have to give him the controller for a bit. So sometimes when you see me playing online, if I'm dying a lot, that's him, because he just looks at the sky shooting, so... Excuses. Yeah. It's not excuses. Excuses. My KD would be way higher. So uh, yeah, maybe just David, give me a give me a deep dive on the thermal imploder, which is a sound which was not represented in the films. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. We talked about that in uh, in the group that had designers, artists, and everything. Uh, the idea was just this. Uh, it had a name, and there was this general idea of what it looks like, what it does, and then I guess. Yeah, one of the first ideas was just this kit could be quite similar to those uh, seismic charges in uh, uh, Attack of the Clones. Mm. So it has a very, we tried to recreate a very similar tone, but not exactly the same thing. So it's its own thing. And then just really match it to the effect. 
So it was a very close work together with the effects team to really get the timing right, so make it a very solid experience. And then also work a lot with uh, just mixing, get some of that uh, air being sucked into a vacuum type of effect uh, cool. where, where everything gets lowered in the time between when it starts and when it implodes. Well, it's a 0 0.6 second time frame. Anyway, uh, yeah. it's... Uh, yeah, it's a very, very fun thing, and it was very fun to add something that also resonates with people. And, uh, of course, since this was a very big effect, we had uh, the opportunity to make something really loud as well, so it can actually be heard. And it used to be a lot bigger, actually, but it played too often during the playtest, so we had to tone it down a bit, otherwise it was the only thing you would ever hear. Yeah. And one of the other sounds which I love, you guys did a deep dive on the blog, was the, the burst shield. I love that, that that was the core of it. You guys even went back and referenced, I guess, the ARP 2600, the synth that was used, I guess, by Ben Bird to create some of the, like those original iconic sound effects. Once again, it's like you have the core of the sound, but then you take it a step further. I mean, that that's a pretty amazing sound to hear. I don't think a burst shield is going to be in a film ever, but it's going to be in... Well, part of uh, okay. part of an element that we use for the burst shield is uh, shield sounds from episode one, which was okay. we we looked at the trilogy, of course. Where are there shields? Where can we? I guess there is. Them? Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, also, yeah, like you said, we used the synth uh, because, as we said earlier, we first tried to find the same language, find the same tools as were used uh, before, so that we can tread in the same path, so to say, and hopefully make something that fits the same universe. It's quite good fun as well. I mean, we don't have an ARP 2600, uh, but uh -huh. I did manage to sort of pull in my entire modular system. I don't know if you can see it over there. <laughs> yeah, as well. yeah. So, I mean, having that with like access to like proper ring modulators, frequency shifters, and then always recording in pseudo stereo. So one channel always runs through tape as well. So you also get all that, that, that natural tape artifacts as well. So it's, it's really good fun actually and it doesn't actually feel like work so it's a bit <laughs> it's a bit funny some days so that's so cool uh well thank you guys so much for just taking the time to talk about this game it's it's a one that i find you can get sucked into because you i look back at i went back and looked at some of the tr the, the the launch trailer i think when they maybe first announced the game title and it's funny how it maybe that that wasn't that even that long ago but you you can see the subtle changes in terms of the growth of this game, just how now that it's been out in the world and people have played it, you know, for you, what's your hope even a few years, five years from now, when you look back at the game of it holding up and the work that you guys did? I think for me, I mean, right to the beginning, you said, you know, what were you thinking like two, three years ago? It's like, yeah. you know, uh, we hope we did this right. And I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's mostly we hoped we didn't mess it up or break anything, that we did justice to, you know, something that's beloved by so many people. And Touchwood, yeah, we, we seem to have done that over the year as well. You know, I mean, it, it came out great, the game, as it was. And then the DLC has continued to build on that as well. But also, as you say, it's taken, we, you know, we do watch for feedback on the internet you know there was the thing about the different colored uh, lightsabers for luke we only shipped with one lightsaber but we used the other sound because we sort of preferred it but then when we introduced both colors of lightsabers we actually then made sure that we were authentic and correct on that as well so i mean it's a uh, it, I think everybody says it but it's it's a labor of love but one that you you enjoy doing and because it, it resonates 
you know, so much on an individual level as well. I mean, you know, Star Wars has yeah. been part of everybody's upbringing. So. What's interesting yeah. is, since we're still working with the franchise, looking back at Battlefront 1, there are, of course, a few things that, uh, sure, we now find we could maybe improve a bit, polish up a bit, but there's also many things where you almost get surprised by that you did those. Uh, I mean, there was so much iteration and some of these things that you sometimes seem to forget. So much thought went into a lot of these systems when you go back and look into the systems there's so many things happening in the logic where you then start to backtrack all the process that went into that like one day you did this the other day you added that and, and uh, yeah it can you can be surprised sometimes by like our ourselves from the past in a way one thing which i forgot to ask before which is um, do you guys have the flexibility to go out and do all the record trips yourselves or are you relying on other folks in your backyard or around the world um it's yeah we can go out and we can plan recording sessions wherever i mean it i found it historically easier with uh battlefield and war series you know you arrange to record 100 guns or six tanks or or something along yeah. those lines what i actually found when i was doing this stuff though is recordings of modern stuff wasn't right so if you wanted to base something on a jet it, it, to be honest, it was actually better to go and find a recording made in the 70s of a 70s jet because you were already there, if it makes sense as well. Like a lot of the strange animal recordings I used to make, you know, new wildlife and stuff, was based from the BBC library, which was recorded to tape in the 70s as well. So it... it you, you start on the right foot for those kind of things as well. I mean, you know, we've got slinky springs around, we've got tubes, you know, I mean, everybody... I, I mean, my journey as a sound designer you know a lot of it has been reading like ben bird did what wow that's amazing swing a microphone you know so we yeah. you try and and follow the footsteps as well um but i mean it's not like a lot of those things you can just go out and record it's a lot about experimenting and for us a lot of learning as well so i think yeah. one of the inter most interesting sounds i came across was actually captured by accident like i i joined a battlefield gun recording and there in between the setup phases, uh, during the setup phases, in the background there were trucks uh, lifting earth and transporting it away, and then every now and then they would have this vibrating noise uh, to to shake out the earth from their containers, and it was the most amazing sound. It resonated so well in the in that environment, and I just happened to record one that one occurrence of that sound, and that then later went into being that signature startup sound of that superstar story. And we also used it for distant thermal imploder. And yeah, we call it Reaper basically mm. as a Mass yeah. Effect reference because it's a very similar sound, but it was recorded in real life. So that's interesting. Yeah. There's uh, I have this uh, windowsill at home that's made out of metal and it just oh. makes this twang and it was actually quite close to the shield sounds we were talking about before. So when, um, you know, and it, it's one of those things when you, you're living in a universe and you're thinking about this stuff, you hear thousands of sounds every day, but occasionally one or two will tickle your ear and you're like, yep, that's exactly right, because you, you're sort of already tuned to that sort of what is a Star Wars sound. And that, that was just like, yep, record it, and that went on the shields for stationary weapons, I believe, because it had a, a, a metallic feel to it as opposed to the... Um, 
what did Gustav say? Musit, the, the, the shield, <laughs> which is like, it's a Swedish word, which means cozy. The shields yeah. were always meant to feel like warm or cozy and protective. And it's such a nice resident word, musit. I'm probably saying it completely wrong. <laughs> That's good. And one other thing that I think players have seen, if you even go back to some of the early LucasArts games of being in an X-Wing and playing that perspective of flying it around, it, I mean, obviously, we've heard the, the other perspective outside. I guess you have seen an inside perspective from the film. So talk to me about just designing the X-Wing experience of flying the vehicle. Well, uh, yeah, Gustav would be the best to talk about it, but he's not here. But I was there. So, um, yeah, for for the inside perspective, we wanted to have a clear difference between outside and inside. So... First of all, we have actually different directions of outputs on the vehicles. So we have a front and a back. So if you're in the third person perspective, you obviously get more of the engine crackle and so on that's kind of pointing at your face. But uh, when you're inside, we want to also make it feel more cozy, more uh, like you're in this bubble, uh, have outside things uh, more muffled, actually a little bit more than in the films because we wanted to really uh, focus on that difference of being outside and inside and being inside the the cockpit, uh, add telemetry and uh, make sure that uh, also the weapons, for example, resonate in on the body of the X-Wing. So yeah, also other stuff like debris raining against the glass and so on uh, when something explodes near you. Unfortunately, not many people play in uh, first person perspective. When you when you say first person perspective, you're talking about in terms of the camera placement, or uh, yeah, the for vehicles mainly. Yeah, why why do you think that is? Do you think it's just too close? Is they prefer having the exterior? I I think you just have more vision of overall what's going on in the exterior view, so I guess that's why people prefer it. Yeah, thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me. It just it's it's fun to see how much work has been done and. Now people can go out and get this the Battlefront Ultimate Edition, which is going to have all the DLCs. If there's any time to check out this game, it's now. And uh, and then obviously here coming up in December 6th, there's the uh, the Rogue One X-Wing VR mission, which is the PlayStation VR version. So thank you guys so much and congratulations on an amazing uh, title. Thank you. Right. Thank you. And thank you so much for playing. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and listening to my chat with the sound team of Star Wars Battlefront. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, THX, a globally renowned brand focused on delivering premium entertainment experiences and is passionate about telling the stories of the creators behind great productions. Find out more at THX.com.